Every Sunday, we've considered one aspect of who Jesus is. We've looked at Jesus, the friend of sinners, Jesus, the one with compassion. This Sunday, we come uh, to our conclusion, and the subject is Jesus, the one who suffers. Now, that's probably not a, a doesn't sound like a very exciting subject. Uh, I, I hope by the end of the sermon, we'll, we'll come to appreciate that the, the suffering of Jesus is, is good news for you and me, and our suffering as well. But we start off with that note that central to Jesus' understanding of himself is the fact that he must suffer. Chapter 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And if we were to diagram this sentence, we would see that below this statement of his suffering, the mustness of his suffering, he describes the type of suffering that he will encounter. He will be rejected. He will be rejected thoroughly by everyone who is anyone will turn their back on him. And everyone who thoroughly rejects him will reject all of him. He will be uh, taken and crucified. So a thorough rejection is the nature of his suffering. Uh, but there are many types of suffering, and this is a suffering before the Lord. I want us to note that Jesus speaks about his suffering in terms that are absolutely crystal clear. Uh, you see in the very first sentence, it says Jesus began to teach them about his. The implication being that this is the beginning but not the end. And of course, Jesus will go on to teach them about his suffering many times. Matter of fact, in my Bible, it has these little headings, maybe yours does too, and it says Jesus, the heading for this chapter is Jesus anticipates his suffering for the first time. How many times does Jesus anticipate his suffering? Three. Three in two chapters. Here in chapter 8, verse 30, one chapter later, he will say almost the same thing. Uh, one chapter later, chapter 10, verse 30, he will say with a little bit more flavor, the Son of Man will suffer many things. He will be mocked, he will be spit upon, and then crucified. He is redundant. Further, he speaks with absolute crystal clarity. Do you see verse 32? Um, uh, I believe it's verse 32, uh, that he will speak with, he, he spoke to them clearly about these things. So clarity and redundancy are the two characteristics of Jesus' teaching about the nature of his suffering. Now, parents, why do you speak clearly and redundantly to your children? I'll tell you why, because all people, all, but especially teenagers, have a capacity to squint at the truth. Follow along with me for this example. Uh, you tell your teenager, I happen to know because not only was I, was I once a teenager, but I have teenagers. You tell your teenager, your curfew is 11 o'clock. That teenager at 10.35 begins to think, now wait, what did mom say? What did dad say? And they begin to squint at that truth. Hmm, I think they actually said about midnight. And they managed to, they managed to squint at the truth so that they convinced themselves that the, the plain facts were something different. You and I all have to, we've done it, I've done it, you've done it. We all squint until we make it say what we want it to say. And when a teacher knows that there's a potential, or a parent knows there's a potential to squint at the truth, they say clearly, they speak redundantly, kid, your curfew is 11 o'clock. Repeat after me, 11 why does Jesus say with such clarity and redundancy that the Son of Man must suffer? Why? Because you and I are tempted to squint at that statement until it says something that we want it to say. 
Now here is the one word that is problematic in this sentence, the Son of Man must suffer. It's not the type of his suffering, it's the four-letter word must. The Son of Man must. He doesn't say he may suffer, as is one possibility among many. He doesn't say, hey, I will suffer, as if this is just going to happen. No, he says, I must. It is essential to his identity, suffering. Not, not some alternate uh, add-on. Central to Jesus' understanding of himself is his suffering. Now, we've looked at Jesus' self, how he identifies himself. He identifies himself as a friend of sinners, one with compassion. He identifies himself as someone with authority. And, but there's no place that he identifies himself so clearly other than right here. I am the one who must suffer. And when Jesus identifies himself, often his identity will, identity will be called into question. The, the religious leaders will say, hey, who is this who speaks with authority? We don't like his authority. Jesus does not respond with the anger that he responds here. When his, the, 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 the centrality of his suffering is questioned in his identity, Jesus responds in ways that are just startling. Get behind me. He says to Peter, a close friend, get behind me, Satan. My goodness. One of the earliest challenges to the faith was this sentence, the Son of Man must suffer. And the early Christians had, they squinted at this statement until they made it say something that they wanted to say. You can see in some sermon notes on the back of your service leaflet, uh, there was a heresy called a doceticism. And we don't need to go into the details of that. You can read what I've written for you. Heresy sounds like, a, like an old medieval church word, uh, but we, we still care about heresy. We still care about orthodoxy, not because we're trying to say who's in and who's out, we care about things like heresy and who Jesus really is because there's something tempting about all errors of the church. And these temptations, if left unchecked, become cruel. And the heresy, that, uh, of the, one of the challenges of the early church was about this one four-letter word, the Son of Man must suffer. And instead of that word must, there are some who inserted the word appeared. The Son of Man appeared to suffer. Right? They, they squinted at what Jesus said until they, Jesus said what they wanted to say. That Jesus just appeared. Now why? I'm going to suggest that this is a recurring challenge of the Christian faith. We wanted to say Jesus appeared to suffer. Why? Why do we want it to say that? Because here's what you and I believe. You and I, and they believe that the better you are, the easier life becomes. And Jesus was pretty good. Therefore, he managed to sidestep the whole suffering bit. Like the more holy you are, the more spiritual you become, the more pious you are, the easier life Gets. And because there's no one more holy, no one more pious, no one more who knew their Bible more than Jesus, well, of course he managed to skirt through life without suffering. There's this book uh, by Ross Douthit. It's called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics, 
again, that word heresy, and you'll see the cruelty of how this notion, the, this notion that the better you are, the less you have to suffer, how un, if it's left unchecked, it becomes cruel. So this is what Douthat says. He says, we've managed to solve the problem of suffering by recasting it as a failure of piety and willpower. If you fail to master everyday events, if you fall into struggle and suffering, right? if you can't get up when the alarm goes off, if you have a hard time finding the line of work that works for you, if your marriage isn't what you want it to be, if your kids aren't who you want them to be, if you fail to master the everyday challenges of life, it's because you haven't prayed hard enough. It's because you haven't trusted faithfully enough or thought big enough or behaved the way a child of God really should. Where any suffering is concerned, the fault lies not with God, not with the devil, not with the fallenness of creation, but with you. So stop your whining. Get down on your knees and do something about it. Now, if it continues, now this message may sound cruel, but it can also be strangely comforting in that it makes sense of one of Christianity's largest problems, that being, why do good, bad things happen to good people? And then suggest in fine American style, there's something you can do about it. Pray harder. Trust more. Widen your horizons. Try a little bit hard. Do you see the connection? We're tempted to squint at this word, the mustness of Jesus' suffering, because we sort of hope the thing, same thing is true for us, that the grass is going to be greener on the other side, that it's just one more prayer away. But Christian faith says no. Orthodoxy, the faith once delivered to the saints, says no. The suffering of Jesus was real. The tears he cried were real tears. Uh, the betrayal that he endured was a real betrayal. The spit that was spat in his face was real spit. Uh, the suffering that Jesus endured was real suffering. The Son of Man must suffer, and here's the rub. Everyone, anyone who follows him is going to experience the same. You see how in verse 34, the, the audience expands. He was talking to Peter, but now he says, hey, come on. Not just my disciples, but all people. Come and listen to what I have to tell you. Pick up your cross and follow me. Everyone, you, me, we are all carrying our cross. I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. He wrote this book, uh, Chronicles about the musical influences on his life. And he wrote one of his musical influences was his grandmother on his mother's side. And talking about his grandmother, she said this, or Dylan said this, she was filled with nobility and goodness. She told me that happiness isn't on the road to anything, that happiness is the road. She also told me to be kind because everyone you'll ever meet is fighting a hard battle. She's saying, everyone's carrying a cross. 
Now, Dylan's lyrics just sold for $300 million. Why has Dylan's lyrics resonated over 50, 60 years? Why are they worth so much? Why did, because he recognizes the reality of the human condition that everyone is carrying a cross. And this is not just a sermon about, this is not about good art. The key to compassion is the suffering, the mustness of Jesus' suffering. What if you and I approached everybody and assumed that their life was just as hard as ours? I know I'm carrying a cross. I just don't think that, I think you've got it pretty much together. The mustness of Jesus' suffering is the key to compassion. Further, the mustness, the necessity of Jesus' suffering is the key to uh, community. Let me explain. Margaret Mead was a cultural anthropologist. Her career had some controversy, but she was one of the leading voices on how civilization developed. And she was asked, this is Mead, what would you identify as the first sign of human, what's the first artifact of human civilization? What would you say? An arrowhead? Maybe a, a, a fire pit? Maybe a place of worship? The first sign of human civilization. Margaret Mead's response, a 15,000 year old broken femur that had been healed. Why? Femur is the biggest bone in the body. It takes about six to eight weeks to heal. During those six to eight weeks, the man who was, had the broken femur, who had a cross to carry, would have to rely on the compassion of others. Mead writes this, the support and comfort amidst suffering does not occur in the rest of the animal kingdom. It is our way of coping with weakness, as much as our ingenious technology and arts, which sets us apart as a species. I think that's just profound. The Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God, and theologians have loved to wrestle, well, how do we image God? How do we reflect his character? Maybe one of the primary ways we reflect God's character is in our capacity for compassion. After all, the Bible is, repeats the nature of God as being full of compassion and kindness and grace, long-suffering and patient. And here, Margaret Mead, with no bone to pick with, with Christianity, not trying to make a theological argument, says, what makes you and us humans is our capacity for compassion. So wouldn't it be great if this this docetic dream that the better you are, the less it hurt. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if you and I could just wave a wand or say a prayer or if you're not religious, read your next self-help book or next therapist and suddenly be done with this nasty bit about suffering. Wouldn't that be great? It's wishful thinking. 
and it's not the way of the cross. Jesus invites you and me to pick up our cross and follow him. And he does not promise ease. He promises endurance, character, and hope. He promises that as we carry our sufferings, we will somehow experience the compassion of Christ. As we carry our cross, we will somehow be united with one another. Listen how, to, how the Apostle Paul describes his experience with suffering from 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercy, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are afflicted with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share in Christ's sufferings, therefore we share in Christ's comfort. Everyone has a battle. Everyone's carrying a cross. Thank God we don't have to carry his cross. He carried that cross. But you and I have our own crosses. Whatever those crosses are, you know them. And the promises of our faith is not that your cross is going to disappear at the sight of eternity. The promise of our faith is that as we carry our cross, we will find it to be the path of life. And so we come to a conclusion with one of the best prayers in the prayer book. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy but first suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise. Together we affirm our faith 